episode 61, Lincoln Log. I'm Merle Riedel, and you're listening to an August 13th, 2008 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. In 1865, the death of Abraham Lincoln rocked an already torn nation. Authorities tracked and killed his assassin, John Wilkes Booth, but evidence began to reveal that Booth didn't act alone. He had friends, and together they hatched a plan to execute the president and members of his cabinet. Some would call that a conspiracy. Join Assistant Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman and me as we travel to the Kansas State House in Topeka to unravel the Lincoln Conspiracy by examining a wood fragment involved in the execution of Lincoln's would-be assassins. Were they a clandestine group on the payroll of the Confederate High Command or an inept bunch of actors involved in a publicity stunt gone horribly wrong? Later, we connect William Allen White, the Pulitzer Prize-winning editor from Emporia, to Gotham's greatest detective, Batman. Was White the inspiration for Batman's supervillain, the Penguin? Or was Emporia, Kansas, the basis for Gotham City? You'll find out when we play Six Degrees of William Allen White. But first, Lincoln Log. Today we are uh, quite literally standing in the shadow of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, we are at the grounds of the Kansas State Capitol building and uh, we're standing near a bronze uh, sculpture of Abraham Lincoln and the sculpture was done by Robert Gage in uh, the teens. And uh, why are we standing in the shadow of Abraham Lincoln, Michaela? Because he was a very tall man. Exactly. No, no. Because <laughs> today we're going to be talking about um, uh, a piece of lumber. Yes. That was involved or somehow connected to the demise of Abraham Lincoln. Um, you want to describe the piece a little bit? Well, the piece of lumber is a roughly 6 inch by 35 inch by 6 inch piece of pine. It has a mortise slot cut in the bottom center, and on one side there are steel eyelets and a cable attached, um, possibly for hanging. And it is a section of the gallows on which uh, some of the Lincoln conspirators hanged after assassinating the president. Right. Just to clarify, gallows, that's kind of the um, um, schnazzy name, maybe, for the scaffold or the device that is used to uh, hang people. Right. Um, oh, and you also might hear some drilling in the background. That's because the Kansas State Capitol building is uh, having some work done to it. They're redoing the facade. It's so. not Abraham Lincoln's dentist? No. Oh. <laughs> no. Um, Okay, and these gallows, they're known as the Surratt Gallows, correct? That's right, generally. We'll, we'll get to that in just a bit. But um, first, let's set up the scenery a little bit, if we, if we could. Lincoln's death, or his assassination, it was huge, right? It was yeah. a big deal. Right. Um, and it was huge, not just because it was the first assassination of a president, but because it was the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. 
Michaela, what were some of the larger issues going on at that time, uh, at the time of Lincoln's assassination? Well, obviously, uh, Lincoln's assassination happened in April of 1865, which was um, at the time the Civil War was drawing to a close. Um, shortly before Lincoln was assassinated, Robert E. Lee and Ulysses S. Grant had signed um, Lee had surrendered to Grant at Appomattox Courthouse. That happened on April 9th, 1865. This didn't mean that the war was entirely over. There were still um, fronts that were being fought up until June of that year. But Grant was the head of all Union forces. Lee was the head of all Confederate forces. And so it really marked um, not necessarily the literal end, but a very big psychological blow to the Confederate states. You know, Lee had surrendered. And so the Confederates were feeling a little depressed. You know, they, their cause had lost. Um, the Union was feeling elated. Washington, D.C. was like one big party. So the war was wrapping up, right. or, or at least the major um, combatants had surrendered. There hadn't mm -hmm. been a political resolution to the war yet. Right. Um, so it was really up in the air about what direction the country was going to go. Right. And it was kind of all boiling down to the judgment of this one man. On April 14, 1865, Lincoln was assassinated by John Wilkes Booth at Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C. Uh, many people assume that Booth was just some Confederate sympathizing freak that acted alone. Um, I don't think too many people realize that um, there were some other people involved. Um, Booth was, of course, a Confederate, a Confederate <laughs> sympathizing freak, um, but he didn't act alone. At some point, he apparently uh, made some friends, and a conspiracy for Lincoln's assassination was hatched. Uh, who were the players in this conspiracy, and what, what exactly was their goal? Well, Booth did have friends. He had a lot of friends, and as um, a famous, well-known actor who was very charming and very handsome, in terms of the conspiracy itself, he gathered around him a group of people who felt the same way about the Union that he did. And he did this, uh, one of his closest friends was a man named John Surratt, which the name Surratt... Um, ah, Surratt Gallows. ...is associated with the Gallows, mainly known for his mother, Mary Surratt, who was also involved in the conspiracy. And through Surratt, um, he and... He, Booth and Surratt were able to gather more Confederate sympathizers around them. Um, at the time, some newspapers were reporting that hundreds and possibly thousands of people would be arrested in connection to the conspiracy. But what it actually boiled down to were um, a group of people that included a man named Lewis Powell, who was also known as Lewis Payne, Samuel Arnold, Michael O'Laughlin, um, Edmund Spangler, George Azarat, David Harold, um, a doctor named Samuel Mudd, and then Marion John Surratt. In the plan, Booth was going to, well, originally, um, the idea was that they would kidnap Lincoln. And at this point, the war hadn't completely, wasn't completely lost. Uh, this was before the surrender. They thought, you know, the South needed men. A lot of their soldiers had been captured or killed. They were running short on, on soldiers. So they thought, okay, well, we'll just kidnap Lincoln and then we'll trade him for the release of prisoners of war. Um, Booth found out that Lincoln would be attending a play one evening and they plotted to, um, to wait on the, his path home and uh, pick him up as he passed by. Um, unfortunately, Lincoln decided, unfortunately for the conspirators, Lincoln decided that night not to go to the play. Instead, he ended up going to um, the presentation of a captured Civil War flag or Confederate flag 
that was held at the National Hotel, which was actually where Booth was living at the time. Wow. And Booth wasn't there. Booth actually had many opportunities to either kidnap or kill the president, and he always just missed him until that night at Ford's Theater. Uh, that's because Booth seems to be a bit of an nincompoop. Yeah, a little bit, yeah. So when, that, when the kidnapping plot went awry, um, Booth kind of, you know, the, the conspirators kind of went their own ways, and... And then Appomattox happened, and Booth realized the war situation was getting more serious. And if he really wanted to do something to save the South, which was his goal all along, you know, save the Confederate cause, preserve the South, um, he was going to have to do something a little more extreme, a little more severe. And that's when he decided that he was going to have to assassinate the president. What he also realized was, and this is actually pretty smart, he realized not only would he have to kill the president, he would have to clear the cabinet. So that's where Lewis Powell came in. His job was to kill Secretary of State Seward, and George Azarat was supposed to kill Vice President Andrew Johnson. So I'm curious, um, was Booth totally acting alone, or was he getting directive from like Confederate high command? Um, this is the conspiracy within the conspiracy. There's the conspiracy to kill Lincoln, which obviously existed, and then there's conspiracy theories about how it came, in, came to being. Um, after the assassination, uh, people remaining in the cabinet and people throughout the country thought that this was the South's attempt to take the government over. This was their last ditch effort to win the war. And some felt that Jefferson Davis or some other um, leaders in the South, generals or someone, had hatched this plan and Booth was just their their pawn to get it done. Their stooge. Yeah. Um, evidence of that is not really forthcoming. Um, after the assassination, of course, the South disavowed all knowledge of the plot. They kind of condemned Booth. So um, whether that could be proven would take more historical research. But How did the plan play out? Uh, did, did Booth and his buddies, I mean, obviously Booth was successful. Yeah. How, did, how did his buddies do? Uh, not so good. Um, Powell made an attack on Seward. He, uh, he came to to Seward's house that night. Seward was recovering from an injury in, I believe, a carriage accident and was um, uh, laid up in bed. Uh, Powell appeared at the house with um, supposedly a delivery of medication sent by the pharmacist um, for the ailing Seward and wouldn't just leave the medicine at the door. He muscled his way into the house saying that he had to give it directly to Seward. And of course, people in the house, you know, Seward's family members and um, the butler were you know, they were suspicious, like, why can't you just leave this here? He managed to get into the bedroom where um, there was a soldier keeping guard over Seward and his daughter was there. And he attacked Seward. Um, he attempted to stab him. The room was dark and he really couldn't tell what he was doing. Um, he, he did make several stabs at Seward. He never actually stabbed him. He caught him across the cheek and disfigured him, which if you look at pictures of Seward, in his early life he's seen, you know, full frontal view. Um, you can see his whole face. In later pictures after the attack, I've only seen one where they show the side of his face. He would not let anyone photograph him from that side anymore because it was a large scar. Um, Powell fled, uh, but he was so so discombobulated by how the attack went down. It didn't happen exactly the way it was supposed to. They were all supposed to leave the city and they had um, Harold was supposed to be their guide because he knew the he knew Washington DC streets, he knew rural Maryland and he was going to be the man that would lead them to safety. Powell didn't make it to the to the out rendezvous of the, point. To the rendezvous point. He he was just he was out of it after that and 
Um, there was indication after um, after he did this that maybe he was a little unbalanced. He ran through the streets yelling, "I'm I'm mad! I'm mad!" Right. And so people kind but of that was yeah. so he could uh, that's so he could claim he was crazy. Oh, you think so? <laughs> well, very well could be. In which case, he was brilliant. <laughs> um, and then uh, George Azarot, who was supposed to assassinate Vice President uh, Johnson chickened out. He, he didn't even make it to the hotel, did he? He was staying in the same hotel, the floor above the vice president. All he had to do was go downstairs and kill him, and he couldn't do it. He wandered the streets, he got drunk, and that's how he spent the evening. He, he, and he obviously didn't make it out of the city. Um, so, so the other assassinations, Booth was obviously a little bit more... Um, Driven. Driven and committed to the plan than the other two were. Although you have to give PowerPoints for trying, I guess. Okay, if Booth was the only successful conspirator, how did they uncover the, the other, you know, eight or nine conspirators involved? Like, mm -hmm. who turned, or, or how did they track them down? And who was doing the tracking? Um, well, at this point, you know, there's no FBI, but there are investigators associated with the government. And Secretary, um, the Secretary of War, Stanton, he gathered together a commission to start investigating this, right? So he's kind of leading it. Of course, Booth did this in Ford's Theater, which at the time was filled with people watching the play Our American Cousin. So you have a, a theater filled with witnesses. A theater filled with witnesses who knew Booth because he was a famous actor. And as soon as it happens, people are saying, in the, as Booth is leaving, they're you know, yelling, catch that man, he did it, it's, you know, I think it's Booth. They know what he's, uh, what his uh, whereabouts had been, who he was hanging out with. So they get the information from them. They go to Booth's hotel room. They search it. They find some incriminating letters. Which let that be a lesson to you. If you're committing crime, it's like a soap opera. You don't say things out loud and you don't leave letters behind. <laughs> so that's where Booth's mistake was. He's an actor. He's got to be yeah. dramatic. <laughs> yeah. So they find incriminating letters and um, in his in his hotel room from people like Samuel Arnold who. Uh, basically wrote Booth a letter saying, look, I know I was in on the kidnapping plot. I don't want anything to do with this assassination stuff. You're on Oh, your he own. left that kind of letter behind. Yeah, yeah. But from there, you know, they found they found uh, clues like that in letters. They knew of his connection to John Surratt. So they go to John Surratt's. John Surratt's out of town, right? They go to his... Uh, his mother's boarding house. She owns a boarding house in Washington, D.C. And they have to go back a couple times and interview her, but they're starting to suspect that maybe she has something to do with it. They found pictures of Booth there, which that's not that uncommon since he was a famous actor, but they find other evidence at the house that kind of incriminates her. And the second time they're there interviewing him, interviewing her and her and her daughter, who shows up but Powell. <laughs> He claims it's the drunk. Middle. He finally found where he's supposed to be. <laughs> he, it's like the middle of the night, right? He shows up and says that he's there to dig a gutter or something, and the the, the investigators are like, "Really?" <laughs> and just to be clear, Surat, the boarding house that the mother owned, that was kind of uh, that was kind of the meeting place, right? That was the conspiracy HQ. Right. That's what they later they later ascertained from from uh, their evidence was that that uh, the conspirators were meeting at Scott's boarding house. That's where they were getting, ready, getting together to plot and prepare. What followed, uh, what followed the investigation was build the trial of the century. Mm -hmm. um, how did the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, how does that play out in court? 
Um, it was pretty much an open and shut case, but uh, mainly because the defense attorneys were not allowed to speak to their clients. They really, they had nothing. You know, they'd go into court, the prosecution would go on and on, and basically for the prosecution, it was an opportunity for them not only to try the conspirators, but to try the South in general for the events of the Civil War. So several of them were convicted, some of them sentenced to death, but there was a couple that were sort of almost sort of snared in the investigative net, right? Like, yeah. nobody's really sure if they were actually involved in the conspiracy. Like one guy I think was holding a horse. Right, Edmund Spangler, he was brought, he was arrested because he held Booth's horse, the reins of Booth's horse while Booth told him, hold my horse while I run into the theater to do an errand. And that errand was kill the president. Spangler didn't really know. He ended up with a jail term. He didn't uh, go to the gallows. Mud, uh, his involvement was a little more questionable. They couldn't actually prove if he was a part of the larger plot. But, you know, he set Booth's leg. Good enough. Uh, Mary Surratt, at that time, you know... Which is, just real quick, I mean, people, um, doctors have to take an oath, you know, to help people when they're sick. Yeah, so yeah. So, even, even if he didn't like Booth, or even if he knew who he was and didn't agree with him, he's kind of obligated to treat the leg. Yeah. And then the other two, um, uh, Samuel Arnold and Michael O'Loughlin, they... They were part of the kidnapping plot, but it couldn't be proven that they were actually part of the of the assassination plot. So they also received jail sentences. The remaining conspirators, Powell Surratt, Mary Surratt, um, Harold and Azarat, they were the ones who were hanged for their involvement in the assassination. Can you tell me just a little bit about the event the day of the hanging? I mean, it was a big event, right? It was a big event. Much like the trial had been, you know, people wanted tickets. You, you could get tickets to get in this thing. Like, people who were honeymooning were trying to get tickets to go wow. see either the trial or the execution. And it was a big deal, not only because um, it was the the revenge or the uh, the justice being served for the the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. They were also going to see the first execution of a woman for a crime in the United States. And that's Mary so, Surratt. And that's Mary Surratt. It's a, so um, it was quite literally sensational in every way. It was sensational. So the scaffold is erected in the on the lawn of the. Um, old arsenal prison in Washington, D.C., literally outside where the conspirators were being held. They could hear its construction. It was being constructed about the same time. Sounded much like that. Much like that, yeah. Um, it was being constructed around the same time they were receiving their sentences. So they can hear it being built outside. They're not sure what's going on. And at that point, they still don't know who's going to be hanged and who's going to get a prison sentence. So uh, this fragment was actually part of that gallows. Can you tell me... Um uh, what part of the gallows it is? It's supposedly, reportedly, what we have in our files say that it came from the top crossbeam, which would be the part where the ropes were attached. Conspiracy theories, um, or conspiracies, are not just associated with presidential assassinations. No. And uh, often uh, the conspiracies don't even have to have um, actual facts to back them up. Mm -hmm. That's what's called conspiracy theory. Mm -hmm. In that spirit, Nikayla, I thought we'd play a little game I call Kansas Conspiracy. I'll give you the proper name, the popular name of a conspiracy that happened here in Kansas, mm -hmm. and uh, you tell me the theory, and I'll tell you if you're right or not. Okay. Okay, the first event, or the first popular name, Quantrill's Raid. Okay, well, I know that a lot of people think that the bigger, the bigger story behind that is... Um, uh, border wars and and the fight for Kansas statehood between Kansas and Missouri. But actually, the cause of Quantrill's raid was because Quantrill had lived in the Lawrence area and people made fun of his hair, his funny mustache, and his accent. 
And so he was trying what? to he was trying to get revenge. He was like a big bully. Jeez, sensitive. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, you are completely wrong. Oh man. And the uh, the second conspiracy, the West Kansas Secession. Right, West Kansas Secession. I believe that theory is that Western Kansas wants to be removed from the rest of the state so they can rejoin Colorado and get some tourist dollars. Mount Sunflower, don't you think? You're partially correct, yes, yes. It is a movement, it took place, this is actually true, there is a movement in the late 1990s, or I'm sorry, late 80s, early 90s, that there were several, at least five counties in western Kansas that wanted to secede from the state of Kansas and form their own state and call it West Kansas. It had a lot to do with uh, local taxing or state taxes and, and the education system. But mm-hmm. um, whether it was really a ploy to increase tourist dollars, <laughs> I'm not sure on that one. Okay, Nikayla, well, thanks for telling us about, um, about this fragment that was used to um, execute the assassins of Abraham Lincoln. Um, thanks for hanging out with us here on the state capitol grounds in the shadow of a giant bronze statue of Abraham Lincoln. And uh, thanks for putting up with the drilling and beeping noises. <laughs> no problem. Another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. Uh, joining me today is the Historical Society's Public Information Officer, Bobby Athan. Hi. And the Assistant Registrar, Nikayla Zimmerman. Hello. Uh, this week we are connecting the Dark Knight to the Sage of Emporia. Or you can also look at it. We are connecting William Allen White, the Pulitzer Prize winning editor from the Emporia Gazette. We're connecting him to Batman. Are you guys excited? I'm excited. I've been actually <laughs> anticipating this for quite some time. It is exciting. Uh, just a little general background on Batman. The character was created in 1939 by the renowned comic book artist Bob Kane, uh, who also went on to develop other classic Batman characters such as the Joker and Robin. Batman was published by uh, Detective Comics, which is also known as what, Nikayla? DC. DC. And it was one of the major publishing houses of comic books in the Golden Age, which is kind of the 1930s and 40s. Um, And today is basically one of two of the two giant comic book companies. There's really only DC and Marvel left. Uh, Batman was kind of created to be the alternative hero to the Superman character who had appeared in comic book just a couple years uh, prior to that. Um, whereas Superman is an alien that possesses super strength and super power, superpowers, Batman is really kind of your average guy, and um, he does not possess superpowers. His, his abilities are um, the powers of deduction. He's sort, of, he's sort of a Sherlock Holmes character, and it's interesting because Robin was supposed to be his, um, was created to be his Watson. Um, Batman since then has spun into a vast franchise that recently received a boost with the... Um, with uh, The Dark Knight, the film that was just released not long ago, um, which has received critical acclaim and um, taken the uh, comic book film genre to a new level. (laughs) Anything to add, ladies? No pressure, Superman people. (laughs) um, Batman was supposed to be a more colorful costume, and then um, early on um, they decided that a dark gray kind of um, outfit would be appropriate, so mm-hmm. he took on that dark, um, dark color early on. Yeah, from the very beginning, he was kind of a dark character, and and um, uh, intentionally created that way. I think, 
um, to complement what was typically the standard brighter, flashier, flashier characters. And except for that weird, the weird television series in the 70s or 60s, he's always been kind of, which was very campy, he was always portrayed as sort of dark and, and menacing. So, Bobby, I believe you have a solution. You've actually found a way to connect a, um, a uh, Republican in Emporia, Kansas, <laughs> to a fictional comic book character. I did. It was, it was fun. Um, it seems that Bob Kane was inspired by um, a book called um, The Bat, The Bat Whispers, which were adapted into movies. And they were written by a woman named Mary Roberts Reinhardt. Um, she was a prolific writer, and um, she was sometimes called the American Agatha Christie. And she created the phrase, the butler did it. She was the first one to do that. Do you have any idea? Is it in reference to a particular book or anything? Um, I don't know. I think, I think it was in the um, a, a, a staircase, the, and I can't remember the name of the, the staircase book, but... Um, the it was butler one of, did it. It was one of her early books. That's cool. Um, she happened to be a Republican. And after the market crashed in 1903, she took up writing to support the family income, and she wrote hundreds of short stories and articles and poems. Um, it seems that when uh, she also started writing, she wrote for the Saturday Evening Post. Mm -hmm. And she did a, a lot of writing from about 1909 to the 1930s um, with the Saturday Evening Post. That is the William Allen White connection. He also was a co contributing writer to Saturday Evening Post in that same time period, and I found a number of different issues in which they both appeared um, together, their articles. No kidding. Um, hmm. And the other um, inspirations of um, Bob Kane were Leonardo da Vinci's diagram of the ornithopter, the flying machine. That's that had true. His costume looks a lot like that. Bat wings. Um, he also um, used Douglas Fairbanks um, as a model in the character of Zorro. So um, he had several um, inspirations in addition to the bat character that um, Mary Reinhardt created. Most impressive. That's really interesting that Batman can sort of trace some of its origins to a um, to a lady writing mystery novels. That's true. It's kind of cool. Another uh, Reinhardt White connection was um, that they both were in Europe um, during World War One um, as writers. Um, um, Reinhardt was a correspondent for the Saturday Evening Post there, and um, William Allen White was with his good friend Henry Allen and, and came back and wrote um, of those uh, adventures in the Marshall Adventures of Henry and Me. Uh, Nikayla, think you can beat that? Um, well, I have a solution, but it's not that impressive. <laughs> Uh, well, as you mentioned, uh, Batman appeared for the first time in Detective Comics number 27 in 1939. Detective Comics is better known as DC. DC Comics was founded by Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson under his company National Allied Publications. And as a child, Wheeler Nicholson grew up in a fairly affluent intellectual household in Portland, Oregon. And the family was visited by influential people, including Rudyard Kipling and Theodore Roosevelt. What? And, Teddy? Yeah. As we know, Theodore TR Roosevelt... Was BFF with William Allen White. So, <laughs> there you go. You know, I was also re reading a little bit about, what did you say, Wheeler? What was his Wheeler name? Wheeler Nicholson. Wheeler Nicholson, the guy who started DC. And it, al it almost sounds like he may have been one of the Rough Riders. Yes, that's true. He did spend time in the Philippines. Mm -hmm. That's impressive. Yeah. Yeah. So, wow, that's pretty good, ladies. Um, nicely done. Of course, you don't really win anything because you work for us. So, um so, Bobby, would you like to present the challenge for the uh, next episode? Oh, certainly I would. Um, in the spirit of the Olympics, 
Um, we we want to be timely, and we want to connect <laughs> William Allen White to Michael Phelps, the Olympic super swimmer currently competing in the Beijing uh, Games. Um, it is believed that both performed quite well in the water. <laughs> Phelps won more gold medals than any other swimmer in history, and White is rumored to have been an excellent floater. <laughs> <laughs> Good job, White. Nicely done. Um, so if you think you can connect a swimmer with bling to an editor with zing, uh, send us your chain of connection to podcasts at kshs.org. That is podcast with an S. That concludes episode 61, Lincoln Log. If you would like to see images of the fragment connected to the Lincoln Conspiracy, go to our website, kshs.org, and click on the podcast icon. Come back in two weeks when curator Blair Tarr explains the inner workings of a Frigidaire stove used in Manhattan, Kansas for over 40 years. This space-age stove was so loved by its owners, they nearly cried the day it left their home. Finally, if you enjoy listening to the podcast, let us know. Feel free to leave a comment on our iTunes page at Cool Things in the Collection, Kansas Museum of History. This podcast is a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people, real stories. Who has to know?